0: Hello, welcome to the VIF Podcast, a place to revisit some of our favourite conversations with filmmakers, creators and storytellers, recorded at the Vancouver International Film Festival and year-round as part of our VIF Talks program. In this episode, we're joined by one of the most iconic musical voices in the world. From his start in 1980 as a trumpeter with the Lionel Hampton Orchestra, to his collaboration with Spike Lee on Da Five Bloods. Terence Blanchard has been an idol in the worlds of jazz, theater, film, and television. Headlining last year's fifth AMP Music and Film Summit, Terence joined variety journalist and editor, Jazz Tanke in a keynote event. He talked about growing up in the New Orleans jazz scene, how he found his path to becoming a film composer on Spike Lee's school days, dissecting the score to Black Klansman, and why writing for film requires you to put your ego aside.
1: Hi, good evening. I'm Jazz Tanke, Artisans Editor for Variety. Welcome to the Vancouver International Film Festival. It is my absolute honor to moderate today's keynote speaker with the insanely talented composer and musician Terence Blanchard. With over 75 credits to his name, Terence has collaborated on films such as Jungle Fever, Eve's Bayou, Harriet, Black Klansman, Malcolm X, and his latest is The Five Bloods. Next up, we're gonna hear his music in Regina King's One Night in Miami. Terence is also a fearless trumpeter who has his own jazz band. So without further ado, let me introduce tonight's keynote speaker, Terence Blanchard.
2: Hey, Jazz, how, how you doing? Good to see you.
1: Good to see you too, Terence. Thank you so much. I'm so excited for our conversation tonight to talk about your incredible music career. I'm really excited to talk to you because we've, you know, we've spoken so many times about, you know, your influences and working with Spike Lee, working with Casey lemons. Um, But I think, you know, let's go all the way back. I think when we spoke several years ago, you mentioned that Alvin Acorn was somebody who came to your school in fourth grade. He came with a jazz band and that's when the trumpet spoke to you. So what do you remember about that? And, was that your introduction into
2: music? It wasn't my introduction into music because my father was a vocalist. He loved opera and he, he played recordings and sang in church. Um, and my uncle sang with him. So there was always music around. My mom's sister taught piano and voice. But in New Orleans, you always heard live music it's during the parades or parties or someplace. But great musicians playing instruments. and. I was about five years old and I used to go and sit at the piano and I would play Batman. I would try. I would try <laughs> to play Batman on the piano I'd hit all the wrong notes. So my my grandparents were like, uh, we need to get this boy some lessons because if he's going to do this, you know, because he's bugging the hell out of us right now. So I started playing the piano at five, but I was in fourth grade in elementary school and I had been playing piano for a while and I was taking lessons and everything. and Alvin Alcorn came to our elementary school with a jazz band playing traditional New Orleans style music and jazz. I'll never forget it. Um, he, the way he played it, it he had so much phrasing and, and so much vibrato and just so much life in what it was that he was doing on the trumpet that it just sounded, uh, it sounded alive. It's it, it had character. And I, I remember, uh, you know, when you're a kid, you don't realize what you do. You know, I remember going home telling my father, I said, Dad, I want to play the trumpet. You know, now, (laughs) as a practical thing, I didn't realize that my dad had just rented a piano for me to have at our house so I could practice instead of going to my grandmother's house. So, needless (laughs) to say, it hit the fan that night, you know. Um, But, you know, my parents were always supportive about Whatever it is, you know, I was interested in. So they got me a trumpet and then that was it. Oh, but you know what was interesting about that? So I started playing trumpet. And then a few years later, we're coming down off of the highway and we get to this traffic light. And in the car next to us was Alvin Alcorn. Oh my
1: gosh.
2: Yeah. And I hit my dad and I go, dad, that's the guy. That's the guy. He's the guy. That's the reason why I want to play the trumpet. And my dad goes, oh, that's Al. And I went, you know him? He rolls down the window and he goes, "Hey Al," and I was, "Hey Oliver," and it seemed like the light was really long for some reason. I don't know why. But, you know. <laughs> my dad goes, "Hey Al, my son plays the trumpet. You think you, you could teach him how to play jazz?" And I got really excited, like, "Oh my god!" And Alvin's goes, "No, no, 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 no. He's got to learn how to do that for himself, man." And I was, I was crushed. As a kid, I was, I was, I'll never forget it. I was crushed. But it was probably the best thing. For me, at the time to make me realize you don't get something for nothing. You got to put some effort and energy into it. And, uh, you know, he just became my hero. I I wish Mm -hmm. I could turn my computer around. Uh, I show you his pictures up on my wall. Yeah. I keep him around all the time.
1: Wow. That's an amazing story. And I love, I, you know, as I said, we've spoken so many times that I've never heard the Alvin in the car story. (laughs) Um, so incredible, but what about your interest in? So you know, you 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 you're playing the trumpet. Did you ever play the piano that they bought you? By the way.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because my my dad's big thing was, if you're going to be in music, you need to learn how to play the piano. So I was still taking piano lessons up until the time I graduated high school, and were well, even in college. I studied with the great uh, Kenny Barron uh, for a little bit in college.
1: Wow. Yes. So where did the interest in film composing begin? Like, was there a film that you watched where you're like, oh, wow, that score is, well, the music in this is so amazing. Like,
2: yeah, it was uh, uh, school days. <laughs> Do the right thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, because, you know, we were session players on the films, you know. Right. Uh, I didn't really pay attention to film music that much prior to that. I remember Star Wars was something, being a trumpet player, Star Wars was something that really piqued my curiosity. But when I saw Spike's father writing music, that's when I said, "Wow, okay, you mean to tell me there's a career in this?" And you know, from the time that I was a little kid, my 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 uh, my composition instructor, his name is Roger Dickinson. He would always make me visualize my future, you know, mm-hmm. and I'd tell him that I wanted to have a band of musicians from all over the world, so I could learn about music from all over the world. But I also wanted to be able to write and write for a lot of different musical situations, uh, big and small, you know, because I just had a curiosity of putting those together. And all of a sudden, here comes this moment that's presented to me because Spike heard me play something on the piano when we were doing More Better Blues. And uh, it was something I was working on for my first album for um, Columbia Records. He asked to use it. We recorded it just as a solo trumpet piece that day. Uh, And then when he got it into the editing room, Kept feeling like it needed something else, man. <laughs> you know, and then he said, hey man, you think you could write a string arrangement for it? And I said, sure. What's a string arrangement? <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I literally called Roger up and I said, hey man, I have this project, what do I do? And then it just became a thing after that. Spike allowed me to do that one scene. Um, I'll never forget it, man. I brought the music in and I gave it to Bill, Spike's father. And Bill goes, no, man, you wrote it, you conducted. I went, excuse me, I do what? Oh, so you want me to stand in front of 70 people and wave my hands? And literally, it was the first time I stood in front of an orchestra to conduct anything. And I remember my school days, I'm like, uh, my high school days, That is, and I got one is here, two is here, three is here, and four is here. Okay, I got that. This hand didn't know what to do. It just took a break you know, <laughs> but but it was a great, but it was a great experience. And that's how my film career got started.
1: Spike Lee. Um, yeah. I mean, you have a relationship with him that goes back mm-hmm. so many years. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you first remember about working with him on, on scoring? I mean, you know, like scoring a full, you know, the, a movie, like,
2: well, the first thing I remember, he kept telling me, he says, listen, man, I don't like underscore. I don't like, underscore. you know, he says, you know, how, I, I like to hear melodies. He says, I want people to walk away from the theater humming the themes, you know, and whenever yeah. they hear the theme, I want them to associate it with the film and the story. And I got it. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget when we did Jungle Fever. Uh, a lot of people may not know this, but the theme from Jungle Fever is actually that first scene that I'd written in Mo Blues. It's the same theme thematic material. Spike loved it so much he felt like he didn't get enough of it. But what was interesting, you know, when it came time to do Malcolm X, that was totally a different thing. And I was trying to up my game from Jungle Fever. That was my first film. I was a little nervous about it. Yeah. And uh, man, I spent a lot of time coming up with these themes for Spike. And what I did for Spike, I made a mock-up of like a, with the synth orchestra, right? And that was a big mistake because Spike hates sense, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and he rejected the theme, but I really felt strongly about it, so I came back, and I let him hear it in a totally different way, and as soon as he hit rewind, I knew I had him, you know, for the young folks, rewind is a a thing on a tape machine that actually rewinds the tape. (laughs) I remember
1: cassette tapes. There you go. My kids don't
2: know anything about that. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But so then you get to Crooklyn, right? The third film you work on, you've worked on together. Like, how had that relationship start to evolve? Like, It was interesting.
2: I don't mean to cut you off, but but, but it was interesting because one of the things about Spike and myself, you know, we've just grown together in the film business. You know, Mm. Uh, we were all trying different things. I remember I was trying to bring in new ideas to him. You know, uh, and it and, and it's interesting because, like, now, you know, listen, I know who Spike is. I know what he likes, what he doesn't like. And we don't have, like, big, long conversations about what we're going to do with the music now. But back then, you know, I would always try a little something in the scene to see if it would work. And he would go, hey, man, you know, like, one of the things I noticed, he, did, he doesn't like tinkling piano.
1: Mm-hmm. You
2: know? and like, if you have a piano that's playing, like, something, like, really sparse or something like that. No, 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 no. He likes piano that's like playing like a performance. You know, that's that's more his style. And uh, when it came time to do Crooklyn, I remember there was one challenging scene. It was the first time I had to do something like this, where the little girl is singing a song and uh, they shot it with just her singing a song. They didn't do like a tempo map or anything like that. Mm. So, you know, it doesn't sound like it because she's just singing and humming and singing as she's walking. But there's a lot of little variations in the tempo and time. You know, and he wanted me to add uh some music to it. And uh, man, that was a that was a feat trying to figure out how to do that, cause it was the first time I had done it. And uh but after we did it, you know, he saw that it was possible, he started sticking it in some other films. <laughs> uh, you could just add something to that, it'd be no problem. Uh, but the big but the biggest thing about Spike though is his cinematic vision, which is kind of uh Helped me develop a sound for his films. Cause like I said, he wants to have thematic ideas. And he and we we had a bit of an argument one time, I think, for Summer Sam, because I remember there was some scenes that I felt like had important information, you know. And uh I said, Spike, you sure you want you want me to play the theme there? You don't want me to just lay a bed so we could hear. And I, I'll never forget it, man. He goes, it's been scientifically proven that the brain can concentrate on more than one thing at one time. And that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say to that? So I'm like, all right, cool. So, but in doing that, you know, I had to learn how to sometimes spread the melody around important words, use certain types of instruments that weren't intrusive, learn more about orchestration, um, so it's been, a, it's been a great working relationship because because of his vision, he's helped me grow a great deal. Yeah.
1: yeah. Talking about growth, I'm going to jump right up to Black Klansman. And we do actually have a clip. I mean, hearing that now, seeing that clip, that film today is as timely today mm. as it was when it first came out. But I mean, where did that guitar riff come from? In the theme that we hear that you know repeats throughout the the repeats throughout the movie.
2: Well, you know, when I kept thinking about Ron Stallworth and his 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 uh, commitment to doing what's right in the world, I started to think about yeah, he's a true American and a true patriot. And I remember as a kid, man, first time I just heard a recording of uh, Jimi Hendrix playing the national anthem, you know, and it had a huge impact on me because prior to that, every time I heard the national anthem, it was done in a very pristine, very you know, conservative manner, You know, um, but Jimmy's approach to it said so many things to me. It, it's, it, it was like he was screaming, like, you know, I fought for this country and I deserve all of the rights and protections that this country has to offer just to anyone, just like anyone else in this country. And I thought that that sound would be the best thing for um, Black Klansmen because that's what Ron Starworth was fighting for, you know what I mean? You know, to be, you know, a police officer and to see this injustice, man, and go after it the way that he did in a fearless manner, you know. And and I I think the thing about it too is that he was an he was an ordinary guy who did an extraordinary thing. And I just wanted to have something that would be strong enough and powerful enough to, to support his character. You know, that clip that you just played, it's one I get emotional about every time I see it Uh because the entire introduction, if you watch it again, the entire introduction goes up to him because we don't know why he's in the field. I don't know why he's in, he's just walking around. We know we saw the guys there, but he's just hanging out. And then all of a sudden, he picks up the shotgun shell. And when he picks up the shotgun shell, that's when the theme starts. And, you know, then there's a key change when we get to the big reveal of what they've been shooting at. Um, And what Spike told me, you know, really bothered me um, was, because I thought that was something that he made, you know, for the film. And he said, no, that's something that they bought online. You could buy online currently. You know, it's something that exists now it's it made you feel like you know we have a lot of work to do and what i wanted to do with the music is to pay homage to an incredible human being man who put his life on the line for people he didn't know
1: yeah and it's it is a beautiful score too i mean when spike called you for black klansman what was his pitch to you what did he say and then when he calls you and you get that call from spike what is your process like do you go to the computer behind you or do you have a do you pick up an instrument like?
2: Well, it, de- it depends. Uh, whenever Spike calls me, it's a funny conversation. I always crack a laugh. And he goes, Terrence. I go, yeah. Spike. I'm Like, yeah, OK, I got it, bro. <laughs> you know, and he said, man, I'm doing this movie about this black guy who infiltrated the Klan. And I said, excuse me, you're doing a movie about what? And he said, yeah, a black guy who infiltrated the Klan. And I went, what? And then I learned more about the story. I didn't know the story around Star Wars. But generally what will happen is he'll call me up and he'll send me a script. And after he sends me the script, once they start to shoot, sometimes uh, he'll send me stills or he'll send me some video clips just to start to get the flavor of the film. And after I have all of that stuff, even sometimes with the script, but I try to shy away from scripts because... With Spike, you can read a script, but his cinematic vision, man, it gets, he, it's like he gets inspired on set. You know, because I did that for summer of Sam. I started writing mm. some stuff. Then when I saw the film, it was totally different. So I try to wait to see something, you know? But once I do that, I'll sit down at the piano and I'll start to play some themes and I'll have the picture up and I'll start to play to it and try to get, some, get a sense of some melodic ideas. And when I do that, I just send them off to him. And then he'll say, hey, man, I want this theme for this character or this theme for, for this scene or something or, you know, things along that nature. And then we'll have a spring session and go through the film scene by scene. And after that, man, the amazing thing about our relationship is that once we get that done, he doesn't hear anything until we get to the studio. Wow. Which is Which is like a little different than I work with a lot of other people, which I get, you know. But, but Spike has so much trust in me, you know, and I, th- and I started to think, you know, the other reason why he does it is because he wants to feel the impact of it like an audience, I think.
1: Yeah. How do you find that creative balance as a musician and then meeting like a director's vision, whether it's working with Casey Lemon's work, whether it's working with Spike, whether it's working with Regina King? Well, the thing is,
2: the thing is, you just, you know, you're there to, to serve a purpose. I'm there to help somebody tell a story. You know, and one of the things, you know, I try to tell my students is none of none of the criticism that you receive is an indictment on you as a musician. You know what I mean? It's just what people feel in terms of how they want to tell their story. You know, um, sometimes when you argue vehemently against a certain thing, that's your movie. You know, that's not theirs, you know, and you have to come to terms with that. Um, but I always kind of like to embrace that because it makes you grow, you know, as an artist. It could be frustrating sometimes because you may see a certain approach that you think is valid, but sometimes a director will come back and say, hey, no, I think we should do it this way. And what, what I've learned is, is when I drop my, put my ego aside and I sit down to really see their point of view it opens me up into something totally different, you know? And being a jazz musician, playing with great musicians, that's what I expect they have on a bandstand, guys who push me in directions that I haven't gone in before. So I look forward to that, you know, when I'm working with directors, you know? uh, Because everybody's different. Everybody has a different way of telling stories. And I'm always fascinated by that.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, in between, you working on movie scores, you know, you still make time to record albums. And I was listening to some of your music and just going back. And one album that really uh, stood out for me was the 2008 album, A Tale of God's Will, Requ- Requiem for Katrina. Mm-hmm. You know, you being from New Orleans, like, and it was also a shift in your a slight shift in your musical style, I think. Um, like, talk about what that inspired, what inspired that album or so much of that music.
2: Well, you know, the thing about it, um, when, when Katrina hit, you know, I was living here in New Orleans and I was teaching, you know, in California at USC at the time. And I had to fly home to pack up my kids and my wife and drive to Atlanta, made sure my, my mom was someplace, my two older kids made sure that they were safe. And in the aftermath of all of that, you know, I lost my mom for two, two weeks I couldn't find her. I didn't know where she was, you know. And I finally found her, brought her out to L.A. where we were. And we were doing Inside Man at the time. And I'll never forget it. Normally, Spike would fly me to New York. And he says, no, I'm coming to you. He says, your family needs to have you close, so I'm going to come to you. And um, I remember he walked in. I had a little two-bedroom apartment at the time. And uh, I remember he walked into the apartment, and he, he didn't even say hi. He says, I'm going to do a documentary on those levees and and I'm going to allow those people to to speak. Well, working on a documentary was was an amazing experience because we were living it. You know, it was Mm. it was really hard. It was the hardest thing I ever had to work on. I remember working on four little girls and when it got emotionally rough for me, I would take a break and just go outside and do something else and get my mind away from it. Well, with this one, when when the levees broke, I couldn't because I would take a break and step right out into the reality of what it was I was working on in my studio, you know, military all over the place. None of the street lights worked. There was still a lot of restaurants. A lot of things were closed. It was just an awful time. But even with that, you know, with, with everything that Spike did, I just kind of felt like, you know, there was more to be said. And uh, I wanted to make my statement because I felt like, even though I was a big part of when the leverage broke, that's Spike telling the story. Um, but the odd thing was every piece of melody that I tried to write on my own just wasn't hitting it. So it was my wife who said, why don't you take the themes from the documentary and expand those and, and write some arrangements for them. And there were so many magical things that happened with that, you know? The, the, the title of the album came because we were sitting in that jamming and one of the guys just started saying, this is a tale of God's will. He just started chanting. And that became the title of the the the, the record. The the, the bass is a tune called, uh, uh, mod, uh, I can't think of the name. It's Kenny, it's it's uh, Kendrick Scott's tune. And Mantra, that's what it's called. Yeah. And it's a bass introduction on Mantra. Now, when you listen to that introduction, the bass has like a really beautiful sound with a lot of effects, right? Well, what happened? This is like one of the magical things that happened was the engineer had, we had just done uh, Inside Man, and the engineer had inadvertently pulled up the Pro Tools session for Inside Man. And when he opened it up, the bass was plugged into this channel that had all of these beautiful effects on it from Inside Man. And I thought it was something that Derek had done on his own. And Derek goes, no, I'm just playing. And then Frank goes, oh, my God. So we left it like that. The entire album was filled with, with, with moments like that. And the, the, the best thing about that album that I always say is that I don't feel like I wrote it. I felt like all of the people in this community here, you know, had a hand in that because, uh, I was never so proud of the people, you know, that I grew up with, man, because to see an entire city just destroyed and to see it come back, you know, with with the kind of fervor, energy uh, that, it's, that it has, it's just been an amazing thing to witness.
1: Yeah. Before we go into the Five Bloods, I want to talk about your work with Casey Lemons because you worked with Casey on East Bayou and Harriet and the Metropolitan Opera in New York announced fire, shut up in my bones. And Casey did the libretto for that. And you are, you know, it's, you know, 136 years, but you know, you're the first, it's the first production by a black composer. How did that happen? And how does it feel to be the first black composer with a production?
2: Well, let me start with Casey. You know, Casey has been an amazing friend. I shouldn't say friend. We're like family, you know. I always call her, you know, she's my sister. And um, she's brilliant. She's just brilliant. You know, from the time, I've been very blessed with everybody that I've worked with in my career. I've worked with really talented, brilliant people. And Casey is definitely at the top of the list. You know, um, from the times that we, from the time that we did Eve's Bayou, I remember her telling me she loved opera and a lot of the conversations we had about the music and Eve's Bayou was 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 so detailed in terms of what it was that she was looking for. I thought, you know, OK, I can see where she's coming from. And then we did Cage Man's Valentine and we did Talk to Me and I just always loved her writing. When it came time to do Fire Shut Up in My Bones*, she was the first person I thought of do the libretto and it was just an an amazing it's been an amazing experience you know because she has a depth of and a passion for putting together words to tell stories that's just phenomenal um so working on fire shut up in my bones was like a dream you know because it was it was the first time we worked in reverse you know she'll shoot the thing and then i'll you know there's something for me to see. And then I write music to that. Well, no, she wrote the words and then I created the music and then we put it on the stage. And uh, her with Jim Robinson and uh, Charles too, even though we didn't let Charles see anything until the premiere, you know, we wanted to surprise him. Um, It was an amazing thing. And Peter Gelb at the Met, I've been friends with for a number of years. I've actually made a couple of records for him when he was the president of Sony Music when it was a derivative of Columbia. Um, I did a couple of records for him. And we had a mutual friend of ours who was my mentor in the film business named Miles Goodman. So Peter had come to see my first opera champion and loved it, but didn't think the production was big enough for the Metropolitan stage. But when he saw fire, immediately, you know, he contacted me and started talking to me about bringing it to the met and um, i was just totally floored uh and it was a bit of an emotional thing because like i told you my dad loved opera and that you know to to go to the met with something you know i know my dad would would be falling over backwards about um, but when peter called me and, and and started talking to me about it Uh, We didn't have really, really didn't have a date. And then when we started talking about dates, we started talking about possibly 21, 22 season. Um, But then things changed and we had a conversation and he said that we're thinking about opening the 21 season with uh, FIRE. And I was just floored by that. And prior to that, I forgot to to tell you, uh, I had done an interview the day that they announced that they were going to do FIRE. And that's when I found out that I was the first African American to have a production to be put on a stage there. And I was in—I was—I was in a bit of disbelief, you know. Uh, I'm like, can you really recheck that, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Because while I'm the first, now the thing that I've been saying—it's been a mixed bag of emotions. Because of course you're proud of something like that, but the other part of it is you get a little sad because I may be the first, but I know I'm not the first who was qualified, you know. Right. To- to, to have a piece done at the Met. And that's the part that stings a bit, you know? But, you know, somebody always has to break down the barriers for other people to come along. And I know that I've been standing on some very strong shoulders. You know, a lot of great musicians who've come before me who have opened the doors for me to have this opportunity. Yeah. You know? So it's one of the reasons why even now, you know, we had the production premiere in St. Louis, but you know, I've been talking to Casey and Jim Robinson. We're gonna make a few changes to the libretto. You know, I'm gonna go back and relook at the score and just make sure things are right for this production because it has to be, because it's The Met. And it's one of those things where, you know, there are too many people that I don't wanna let down, you know, with the production of this opera. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Terrence is trailblazing away um, and leading the way. Let's bring up the Five Bloods clip and we'll talk about, we'll go back to Spike and we'll talk about working on this film. Talk about how did you crack the theme or that the music for the Five Bloods going from present into that flashback and that gorgeous sequence that we just saw?
2: Well, let me first say, I mean, it's it's heartbreaking to see my brother Chadwick. you know, um, Man, he was a great talent and an awesome person, you know. um, I never got a chance to meet him, you know, but uh, I remember talking to uh, Clark Peters uh, after we found out that he had passed. And, uh, you know, Clark told me, he said, man, doing that entire shoot, he never let on that he was ill or anything, you know. he and he just did his job. And when you look at the film, man, he was the future. And uh, that's what breaks my heart about seeing that clip because I re- one of the things that I remember about with the film was it's, it's to see these veteran actors like Delroy, Isaiah, you know Clark, and then to see Chadwick and to see this lineage being connected between these veterans and this and this young kid with all of this talent. And you just would think like, okay, you know, the future for this kid is like really, really, I can't call him a kid, he's a young man, but the future for him was extremely bright. You know, so my heart goes out to his family still, cause I know it's gotta be a tough time to deal with it. Um, when it came time to crack the sound for the film itself, You know, I grew up in a neighborhood in Punch-A-Train Park, New Orleans, where we had some veterans from the Korean conflict. And I just looked at how these guys never really got their due. You know, it's the same thing, you know, with the Buffalo Soldiers. And um, my goal was to try to write music to show their sacrifice, man, to show their heroism. You know, uh, sometimes we we glorify violence in a way where it kind of uh, waters down the fact that it's violence, you know? Uh, but what I wanted to show in this film was these guys were, were driving towards these, these, these issues, you know, um, to make a better world for us, people they didn't know. So it took me a minute because... I wanted to try to write something where that could move underneath that sound militaristic, but I, I also wanted to have certain types of elements of it that brought in their cultural background. Some of that is done in the melody, and some of it's done with the type of drums that we use at certain moments in time uh, throughout the score. Um, but I wanted to make sure that when you saw them, you realized that they were professional soldiers. You know, they were there doing their job uh, and they were really great at that job. Um, I think Daryl Lindo's performance in the film is just incredible, yeah. you know? And he's, he's been a friend for a long time, but also he's just been a person I'm always inspired by uh, because, man, he, he delves into the characters you know, yeah. he, is, he is truly uh, a special talent. And, 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 and the thing you have to remember is that, you know, you guys are seeing the picture and it's all done. You know, it's, it's all put mm-hmm. together, the lighting, the editing, the music and everything. When I'm watching and I'm watching these scenes with him, I'm watching him with no music, right? And I'm watching him just like draw this, you know, put together this character and draw this energy From somewhere, I don't know where. And it was just amazing, you know. And that in itself, along with all of those guys' performance, really helped shape what the music was. They actually told me through their performance what the music should be.
1: I love that. I love that. And another thing with the film is, you know, Marvin Gaye's music, the Mm -hmm. album, What's Going On features such, you know, prominently in that. So, you know, when you've got that, how do you? Complement Marvin's music with your score and again, find that balance?
2: Well, some of the things that I try to do is just to try to make room for the music, for his music. Yeah. You know, and, and one of the things that I always try to do is not try to emulate that. You know what I mean? I try to treat it as a separate character because, you know, um, Spike is really great at giving you a sense of space and time through a bunch of different avenues. Obviously, the way that it looks, the dialogue, and then also the source music, the source material. So I always figure my job is to give that space. You know, if, if, if there's a cue that bumps up against one of those songs, I try to make sure that I'm not coming in there guns are blazing. You know, I'm trying to let that piece of music have its statement and then try to find room to find my way into a scene. And it's worked out pretty well with Spike's cinematic style because he also, you know, Spike likes to do a lot of jump cuts.
1: Mm-hmm. You know?
2: And when you start to get accustomed to Spike's language, it's just all part of his language. You know, that's been a beautiful thing about working with him for 30 years, man. You know, I get it now. And, it, and it, you know what's funny, too? Because um, when we did Black Clansman, I kept feeling like it was a culmination of all our years working together. Now I feel the same way about the five bloods, you know, because you look at it, it's simple, yeah. gorgeous, the way that it looks, the acting is incredible, the editing, everything, you know, it, and it's one of those things, man, you <laughs> know, it's probably gets me to film. I always have this, oh shit moment, you know, like do not mess this up, please, you yeah. know, cause it looks amazing. So uh, it always inspires me to do, go the extra mile and make sure my end of it is, uh, holding up the way everything else is.
1: Yeah. And then you also scored the music for HBO's Perry Mason.
2: Yeah.
1: Working with Tim. Um, Let's bring up this clip and then we'll talk about working on that. I love this score so much because it's a throwback to noir. There's a sexiness to it. It's dark and moody. Um, Talk about the conversations you had with the director, Tim Van Patten, and also, like, were you a fan of Perry Mason, like, the the 70s series? Oh, yeah, of course.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. You know, I was a big fan yeah. of Perry Mason, you know, so when they asked me to do it, you know, and they told me I was doing the remake, I was like, wow, okay. And I was trying to figure out how would Perry Mason fit in today's world, you know? Mm. And they sent me the script, and when I read the script, I went, oh, my God. This is something different, you know? And when I saw the first cut, you know, friends of mine who knew I was doing Perry Mason, I kept telling him, I said, man, this is not, this, this ain't your father's Perry Mason. This is something that's a little different. And when I was talking to Tim about it, I kept telling him, I said, man, this is just, it's gorgeous it's, and it's just brave. And I said, I don't think we should try to just do period music for this. You know what I mean? I said, that's the easy and the most obvious thing to do you know, uh, but you didn't take the obvious road in casting and in telling the story. I said, so I wanna try a mixture of different elements, you know, and and Tim was, he was really into it, you know, and um, we just kind of went from there. The thing that was like really interesting because of COVID, you know, we didn't get a chance to score in the studio. So what we did was I, I had written a lot of the music and, um, we had guys who could record in their own home studios. Um, and then one of the things that became apparent, I wasn't going to play on it. You know, yeah. I was going to have another featured instrument. I just couldn't figure out what. Uh, and then time was just a wasting. And I said, you know what, why don't I just try and put the trumpet on and see how it works with everything else? Because if you, if you watch the this, this series, when you hear the saxophones, the saxophones are kind of period. You know, the rhythm section can be a little period, but the trumpet isn't, the trumpet doesn't come from it. The trumpet is more of like the conscious of, of everything that's going on. Um, and when I turned it into Tim, man, he dug it, you know, and we just kind of went from there. The beautiful thing about working on Perry Mason, man, was that the story just evolved. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it I, I, I remember uh, having a, um, a conversation with Tim, cause I was getting a little nervous about how each episode was so different, you know, uh, stylistically and musically, and um, I said, "Well, man, some of these themes are are coming back to you know the same way that you would hear in episode one or two, and he goes, "That's okay, it should it should evolve." So that was the first hint of me like really understanding where he was coming from. And then we just kind of grew together, man, just working on things. You know, he would call me up and he would say, you know, hey, this one scene, I think we should take another approach at it. I would go after it and we'd whittle things away. Um, the main thing we were trying to figure out was when to introduce the famous Perry Mason theme. And he, was, he, he had a brilliant approach about it because we didn't really bring it up initially because we didn't feel like this was Perry Mason yet. This was a private... You know, he was a investigator. He wasn't a lawyer yet. It wasn't until later on in the series, you know, that... Well, hopefully I'm not giving things away for people who haven't seen the show. But but after after that, man, it was just a joy working on it because I kept telling Tim, I said, man, I'm watching this show and everything is on the screen. There's nothing... That the, that the music should add, you know? Sometimes in certain films or certain television productions, there may be a scene and the music will add the context, right? Well, with, with Perry Mason, I really didn't have to do that. You know, everything is on the screen. The only thing that I had to do is actually just be right with it, you know? And and that was a lot of fun working on that on that show, man. I can't wait for season two to see what happens because you got to remember. I'm just like everybody else, you know. I I got the script for the first episode, so every episode after that, man. I, I remember going, okay, man, I can't wait to the next one. <laughs> What's going to happen now? <laughs> you know, it was exciting. Oh my gosh.
1: What was it like to score something, you know, a, a show in COVID? Because you also did that for one night in Miami, but
2: it's challenging. You know, it's challenging because when I first met uh, Tim. I met him in his office, you know, mm-hmm. and we just got a chance to kick it. And we both figured out we're Brooklyn boys, you know. I'm from New Orleans, but I lived in Brooklyn for a long time. He still lives in Brooklyn, and we started talking about that, and that was like really great. The same thing with Regina for one night in Miami, you know. We we didn't get a chance to really hang. I met Regina last year doing the Oscar run, and we we hung out and got a chance to know each other. But when it came time to work we didn't get a chance to sit down and create that baseline of communication. You yeah. know, uh, we did our best. And I think everything came through in the end because, you know, we just paid a lot of attention to detail. But but this COVID situation of working on films is rough, you know, because normally uh, I'll sit in a room with Regina, play her some music, get her feedback, maybe play some stuff on the piano get a feedback and just kind of go from there. You know, here I'm putting stuff down, you know, in the computer and I'm sending it to her, waiting. And there's just that, that time uh, uh, elapsed between all of those things occurring just just creates a, a not a favorable situation because yeah. I, like, I like to see people's faces, you know, when they, Hear certain things because sometimes we're not all verbal about things. But having said that, both in Perry Mason and One Night in Miami, you know, we came through, you know, and and did our thing. You know, I think One Night in Miami is a phenomenal movie. You know, <laughs> I kept telling him, I said, "This doesn't look like a first-time director's film." Just up.
1: exactly, exactly. Let's give the audience a treat and let's. Let's show them a clip from Regina King's directorial debut, *One Night in Miami*. Do you want to talk about the clip? Because obviously, people would might not have seen the film yet. Like what we just saw, and yeah. you know the sound that you had, and if you used any like new instruments maybe for this the first for the score.
2: Well, well, the clip that you just saw—it's—it's it's actually Leslie Odom is playing Sam Cooke, and the, the other actor is playing uh, Muhammad Ali, or Cassius Clay. He was becoming mm-hmm. Muhammad. And um, the entire film is about this conversation between these four African American men, just about life. And it's a very powerful film. I don't want to give it away. You have—you really have to experience it from beginning to end. Uh, one of the choices that Regina made was to just feature piano throughout the 80% of the score. There's not a lot of music in the film itself, but she wanted to have uh, like a jazzy blues, bluesy kind of piano feel for the score, which is totally different than anything I've ever done. There's a there's a couple of instances where Malcolm X is praying, and I introduced the Duke, which is a woodwind double reeded reed instrument. Uh uh, from the Middle East, that has a very beautiful sound um, so there's a there's a few moments where you hear that throughout the film, but for the most part, it's piano, and it's done by a dear friend of mine who's a great jazz pianist. His name is Benny Green, and what we did was because we tried a number of ways, and finally, we got to bring Benny to l a and it was a it was a little bizarre because. Uh, I was a little jealous because Regina and Benny were in a room together and I was on Zoom, you know, during that session. Uh, and it was it was a little rough working that way. But we got we really got through it, man. You know, and I think we accomplished what the film needed. And again, I'm not just saying it because I worked on it, but I think everybody should see this film. I think it's just an important film to see. Period.
1: Yeah. And it's an incredible directorial debut. And I can't say that enough. You watch it, you walk away, and you're like, you have to remind yourself this is Regina's first movie. And yep. the cast is incredible. But you know
2: what happens when you walk away from this film? For me, you walk away from this film going, I can't wait to see what she's going to do next.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm with you on that 100%. Um, so we have some questions. It's time for audience questions. And one of the first, Uh, questions is, can you talk about the difference between writing jazz tunes versus writing a score, especially when it comes to harmony?
2: Well, you know, when you're writing a score, for me, it's all about intention. You know, when you're writing a score, I'm there trying to help somebody else tell a story. So I have to make sure that whatever it is that I'm doing is furthering the timeline and the storyline of the film. Harmony and all of that, sometimes it doesn't Really matter depending on the film. What I'll say is that obviously, with my jazz career, some of the harmonic progressions that I write are a little they're, they're a little more dense. The colors may be a little different, but the techniques of writing are still all the same in terms of how you develop an idea. Um, I'm a firm believer in you know developing your compositional skills because that's really what carries you through. So if I'm writing something from a jazz perspective and the idea has a certain type of harmony embedded in it as a composer that becomes the DNA of the entire piece and when I'm writing for film the same thing occurs you know if the harmonies is is not as dense doesn't move as much that's still the initial DNA for the entire musical experience throughout the film and it's it's always interesting you know, because <laughs> when I first started writing film music, there'd be times where I'd want to introduce like this very dense chord, you know, after setting up a certain type of tonal color for the film, and it just wouldn't work, you know. Uh, it would just come out of left field. And I had to learn the same thing. Art Blake used to tell us all the time. He said he would he would have this saying, let the punishment fit the crime. And what that and what that meant was Play what the situation calls for. Yeah. You don't have to prove that you can play everything all the
1: time. What about like how have you grown over the years? Like what have you learned about yourself in terms of, you know, composing and
2: well, you know, it's one of those things you just have to learn how to love what it is that you love.
1: Hmm.
2: You know, like I, I wanted to be Miles Davis, Don Cherry. Wayne Shorter and John Coltrane all rolled up in the one, And then I got a chance to meet Miles Davis and I realized that wasn't gonna happen, (laughs) you know. But what I did realize is that, you know, I did have something to offer. And there are certain things that I do like about rhythm, harmony, melodic uh, development. And I just try to stay in my lane, but grow within that lane. And everything is still applicable and possible in certain areas, you know? Like I like I, I remember, uh, I can't remember what scene it was, but I remember working on one of Spike's films where we did just like some really avant-garde stuff where I just had strings playing frantically and then I would give them a register to play in and, and then the register as the scene would go along, would get wider and wider and wider and everybody had different registers. And it, it was cool because it created this, certain type of intensity, but that was something that's a little out of character for what I, what I normally do, but it was still fun to, 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 to be able to have that in the arsenal. So it, again, it's all about intention. Yeah. What it is your music is trying to do, but at the base of it all, I don't care what type of music that I'm writing, whether I'm writing an opera, whether I'm writing a concerto, film music or for my own band, at the base of it all is uh, the, the, the the very functional compositional tools that I was given when I was a kid.
1: What is the greatest obstacle you've had to overcome when it comes to having a career in music? Like
2: Trying to prove to people that I'm not one-sided. Just because I'm African-American doesn't mean that I just want to do all African-American movies, you know? Or that I want to do a certain type of music, uh, or that I'm just bound by one thing. You know, I have all types of interests. You know, music is a, a there's a fascinating thing about putting notes together to create melodies that can have people react to a scene. That fascinates me. You know, being able to play live music and get feel the vibration from an audience, and that inspires you to play a certain way with great musicians on a stage that intrigues me. But this constant thing of trying to get people to understand what it is you do is frustrating. i never forget, I was up for a film after I had done, I don't know, maybe about 30 or 40 films. And the person who was considering me, which they didn't hire me, but they were considering me saying, well, this film may be a stretch for ten, she's going to need to write for orchestra. And I was just dumbfounded by that. I'm like, well, you're in the industry and you claim, do you know what I do? Um, there's been so many instances like that. But now the thing that's like really been great is that over a 30 year career, I've amassed enough work where people are starting to get it, you know? And they're starting to see you know, that, uh, I have a lot of interest. Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't want to be pigeonholed into being one
1: thing. Right. And it's taken till 2020, I'm assuming for people to, to... <laughs> yeah.
2: well, listen, look, at least it's getting it. That's, 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 that's the, that's the, that's the best thing about it. At least it's getting that. You know what yeah. I mean? My, 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 my agents have been doing like a, a really, really great job of making people aware of that. You know what I mean? And it's, it's it's been a, a difficult road in uh the early part of my career, but uh it's it's starting to work itself through now.
1: Yeah. Slowly but surely. The conversations are happening. It's hap- you know. Um talking about the early part of your career, um, when you first started out, like how did you make connections not just with the people, you know, with people in the industry, but people that you thought would be great to work with, like.
2: You know, I I've never been one to, to go out and actively try to do that. And a lot of that mm. just happens naturally, you know, for me. And I and I and, and one of the things my wife and myself we talk about is just like not trying to force that, you know, because whenever you try to force that, it, it doesn't feel genuine. It feels it feels like you're making an association just to work. You know, and what I've always tried to do is just be confident in what it is that I have going on. And when I meet people. It's about like enjoying them as people, you know, and getting to know them as people. You know, when I met Regina, I didn't think I was going to work with Regina. Well, first of all, I didn't know she was going to be directing, you know? Mm-hmm. And when I met her, she was just cool people to hang with, you know, and she's a beautiful person. Um, so I, I never thought about that. Casey, the same thing, you know? Um, so I tell people, because I've seen it, I've, I've seen some guys will come to sessions You know, some of my sessions and try to establish relationships, you know, with people. And that's hard to do. You know what I mean? You have to just kind of allow your talent to speak for itself and just enjoy people's company, you know, because uh, if your talent is there, people will recognize it. You know, that's that's my firm belief uh, is to always be ready, you know, uh, to step in. I, I think the, the beautiful thing about being in this business or anything, you know, is to allow your talent to speak for itself. You know, have the courage and have the conviction about what it is that you do. That's always the, That's always the thing. You know, um, when I first got into the, the recording business as a jazz musician, we would always say we don't want our music to be interview music. You know, the music that sounds better when you're talking about it than when you actually, hear it. you know what I mean. Um, so for me, I'd rather be like Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker would say, "Man, I'm gonna let the music speak for itself."
1: Love it. And another question, and thank you again to the audience for you know for sticking around and you know sending the questions in. Is have you had any difficulties competing with sound with sound effects competing? With the score of a film
0: uh
2: no not really um i'm trying to think it was a tv show years ago it was a long time ago but that was probably the only thing you know i've i've been blessed to work with people who love music casey you know spike you know regina uh, i've never been in a position where i've had to go through that um i've Maybe Red Tails, probably, but I don't even feel like that was a big
0: deal there. Yeah.
1: What about some of your favorite film scores and how have they inspired you? Like, I know we talked about some inspirations for The Five Bloods or movies that inspired you, but what about scores?
2: Well, one of the ones, one of the, man, I mean, there's so many, but one of the scores that had a huge impact on me was Shawshank Redemption, you know? Um, and I think it was just basically because of the uniqueness of of Tom's style. He has a way of creating music that kind of works anywhere and its approach tonally, you know, harmonically. And, you know, I've gotten to to know Tom a little bit and uh, he's really a great guy, man. Uh, Very generous dude too, because I would ask him questions about, you know, some of those scenes. And he would be honest and tell me about his approach. Um, but that was definitely one. Uh, what was the film that Denzel was in? Glory, you know, was another one. Yeah. Uh, that's, I really love the, the sound of that score. I mean, it's, it's, there's been so many.
1: Yeah. Do you, what's your like routine or method when it comes to writing and putting music together?
2: It, it, it always changes a little bit, you know, because I've always been taught that ideas can come from anywhere. It's not, it may be a melody at one point, it may be a sound at some other point, it may be a rhythm, you know, or it may be some kind of harmonic progression. So um, a lot of times what I try to do is to try to get to, to understand the film. You know, I'll watch the film in its entirety and then when I start to really delve into it, like with, with, uh, with Harriet, For some reason, I gravitated toward the scene in the middle of the film where she's crossing the river. And um, I just worked on that scene and looked at it over and over again, looked at the moments where she stopped and when she started to pray and then when she started to take off again. And once I created the music for that scene, then it just kind of informed what the rest of the film was about. With The Five Bloods, it was different. It was the first scene the one you showed with the helicopter, them coming down. Oddly enough, for Black Klansman, man, it was the, 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 the scene with uh, Alec Baldwin, which was so weird because that music only appears right there. It doesn't appear in the rest of the film. But for some reason, man, it was something about that scene that just kind of got me jacked up about, you know, the rest of the film. So it'll, it'll, it'll change. But I think the most important thing is to a lot of film to talk to you and to speak to you. It'll, if you. If you learn how to listen, it'll tell you what it needs. But the, the big problem sometimes, man, is that, you know, we want to prove that we're film composers and we want to prove that we're great composers. So we always want to, may want to add some complex sound rhythmic thing and may not need that,
1: you know? Yeah. How difficult was it to score from, you know, for Perry Mason, you know, episodic TV, where you don't know what's going to happen, right? Because they're still writing the script when you're working episode one versus any movie where you get, you know, you know the beginning and you know the end. Like, talk about the challenge of...
2: Well, the interesting thing about it is that, you know, working on television, I get excited, I get juiced, you know, to um, create the music for every episode. You know, I, I remember when I would get a new episode for Perry Mason, I would just sit back and watch the, entire thing you know and once I would watch it I would try to get a sense of what that episode was about knowing kind of generally maybe what may be coming down the line uh but not specifically because they didn't give me that much information um and just try to keep everything in the context whereas with a film you know this is the statement you know there's not going to be another episode this is it so Mm -hmm. I have to structure everything in that regard. Like For example, with an episode, you get to the end of an episode, musically, there may be some open-ended things there, you know what I mean? Because it's an episode, we know that there's another one coming. With a film, not unless we're gonna do a sequel, which I haven't really been a part of, that's mm-hmm. not gonna really occur in the same way. So I have to look at the entire film as the, as the statement. And then that kind of puts a little different twist on things because in a television episode, if I explain this right, there may be a development of things doing like this. And then it gets to the next episode and it does, and then it will pick up here and then it may come down like this and then do this. you know. But with the film, you just have the development of the film and then that's that. And you have to make sure that you do everything you need to do within the context of that story.
1: Amazing. Well, helpful is, what advice would you give to composers who want to cross over into writing music for film, especially Black and people of color composers?
2: Well, first of all, uh, know your craft. That's number one. Know your craft. Because um, one of the things about this business, you can't hide. You may talk your way into something, you know, which I doubt that really rarely happens. But if you talk your way into something, you better have the goods to back it up, you know, because you're going to be put to the test because, you know, people spend a lot of time putting these productions together. So know your craft, learn the, equip yourself with the tools of composition as best you can. Uh, So that means to go out and study with a teacher or uh, in a school setting. And, you know, for, for, and it's not just people of color, but it's also women too. It's people from all different walks of life. You know, that's a tough one. It's hard. You know, you have to try to get your music heard. You know, there's there's, there's organizations like Sundance Film Labs that I always, you know, talk about because I've seen what they've done for young people's careers, you know, uh, where if you can try to become a student in that it's a two week process. And what they do is they bring in six writers from around the world and they'll have a workshop with them to develop scripts. Then they'll bring in six directors from around the world and they allow them to shoot these shorts. And uh, then you have professional actors, major actors who donate their time to act in these shorts. And then when they bring in the five directors Right at the tail end of that, they bring in six composers. And then they'll bring educators in, like myself or some other composers, Thomas Newman or somebody, and work with the composers. And, uh, you know, Tyler Bates has come from there. Uh, uh, Fabian Amazon, Derek Hodge, and uh, someone else uh, in my band has done it. And they've gotten work in the film industry as, as a result of
1: it. Well, I have one more question. And... You've done so much. You've done opera, you've done animation, you've done TV series, you know, and you've obviously got this incredible career in in film scoring and you've got your own music. Is there anything else or is there a genre that you want to do that you haven't done yet?
2: Uh, I don't know. I mean, there there, there are a lot of things that I'm still interested in doing, dance pieces. I did a piece... Mm -hmm. With a with a with a dance group called uh, Rennie Harris and Pure Movement, we had a piece that we call Caravan. It's about gun violence in our country that we've done. He's like a hip hop dance group, and, a, and him and the E Collective, we we did a bunch of shows uh, together. That was really a lot of fun and amazing to do. Um, right now, I'm just I'm just focused on these projects that I have. You know, we have the fire coming up for the Met, and then. You know, I have an album that we recorded with the uh, E Collective, the Turtle Island String Quartet, myself. Um, we did uh, some original music and the music of Wayne Shorter. Really excited about that. Um, and you know, I, I try not to. I try not to set uh, specific goals for myself in terms of I want to do this type of thing, and, mm-hmm. because the sky is the limit. You know, I don't I don't want to be looking at one thing when there's an opportunity over here. You know, uh, I just try to keep my mind open to whatever comes my way. If it's interesting enough to do, I'll make sure that I'm a part of it for sure.
1: I love that. Terence. it was such an incredible conversation. Thank you oh, so thank you. much.
2: Thank you. It was good talking to you again.
1: Likewise. And thank you to the Vancouver International Film Festival and to the audience for setting in your questions and joining us for this conversation so thank you everybody
2: thank you guys i appreciate it
1: thank you terence
0: thanks for listening to this conversation recorded live at the vancouver international film festival this podcast is a way for us to bring the inspiring conversations that happen during VIFF to you at home we'd love to continue doing that so if you're enjoying the show Please rate and review the podcast, and be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Fifth Talks are programmed by Fran Bergen. The podcast is produced by Clem Lou Bay and me, Ellen Hadley, on the unceded territories of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Sailor Tooth Nations.